we are in Isaiah chapter 33. And last time we finished up with a prediction of the future messianic kingdom when 32 ends with happy are those who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. An image of peacefulness, an image of fertility, and so forth. One of the things about Isaiah and about prophecy in general is that once God has decided that Israel or Judah is to go into exile, the prophet keeps speaking, but he speaks in parables and he speaks in hidden sayings and he speaks in metaphor and poetically. And the idea at the time was that it was difficult for the people hearing or reading the prophecies contemporaneously to understand so that they would not be able to turn and be healed. That was, if you remember, Isaiah chapter 6. Well, the problem with that for us is even though we have the Messiah, we have the New Testament, we have the outworking of a great many of the prophecies in the Tanakh, it is still the case that a lot of this stuff is poetic and obscure. And doubly so because we are some nearly 35, 3,700 years from the culture when it was presented. So as we read these things, it's often difficult to understand, and it's doubly difficult because in many cases, things that happened in the past versus prophecies that have been fulfilled to date versus prophecies that are yet future, it's often un difficult to unwind those things and figure out which is which and, and what she's talking about. So we'll start with that in chapter 33. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. No idea whatsoever who's being talked about here. And I can think of a couple of examples. One of the commentaries I read said we're talking about the Assyrians, especially Sennacherib, who, as we've been saying over and over, is the Assyrian king who lays siege to Jerusalem and whose army is destroyed by God in a single night. So the betrayer in that case, or the traitor in that case, could be Sennacherib, in that he has been called by God to take out the northern kingdom. His brief does not extend to the southern kingdom. So the idea that he would lay siege to the southern kingdom makes him, with air quotes, a traitor against God. That's one possible meaning of this. Another possible meaning is one of the things that's happened historically in Israel when especially Jerusalem is under siege, there usually exists a faction that is hot-headed and rises up and says, God's with us, let's open the gates and go out and slay all those heathens, whatever the heathens may be, Philistines, Assyrians, Romans, whatever. And they are typically in a minority. And one of the things that they did in the past is in order to get the city to move, they burned all their food supplies so that the siege was then exceptionally effective because there was no more food. So that forced the battle and Israel lost that battle. 
So the traitor here could be someone inside of Israel. Just don't know. But the point of the matter is, when you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. So the idea is whoever this is, is going to come to a bad end at the end of the day. Verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. So calling on the Lord to be the protector and the defender of Israel in a poetic way. So verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of our times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. I regard this as a really important passage of Scripture because what it is explicitly acknowledging is that, of course, as, as we know from the entire Bible, the Lord is, in fact, the one who either protects and defends Israel, Israel meaning the whole nation, not the northern kingdom, or he is the one who arranges for their chastening when they are not walking with him. But the idea that God's favor, or in this case the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, that God's favor is for Israel a strategic treasure, something that is not available to any other nation. It is a special treasure to Zion or Jerusalem. So I regard that as extremely important. And of course, as we know from the entire Bible, a couple of things happen. Thing one is Israel drifts away from God and falls into either idolatry or apostasy or violence and injustice or, or whatever, which causes God to either remove his protection or actively bring people against them, as in the case of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. What Israel does under those circumstances, and it's predicted in Deuteronomy, is when a calamity befalls Israel, the first thing they do is they start wailing and saying, Oh God, if you were with us, none of this would have happened. Well, what God tells them back in Deuteronomy and the Torah is the reason this is happening is because you're not walking according to my ways and you regard yourself under those circumstances as having been betrayed by God, but it is in fact you who have betrayed God and he is simply carrying out the uh, terms of the covenant. So the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. I, I find that extremely important. It's one of the central verses in the Bible from my perspective. Verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. This appears to be talking about the Assyrian invasion. The northern kingdom has been taken out. 
and that's done at God's behest. But as Assyria then moves against the southern kingdom, all of these things happen. In other words, the envoys of peace weep bitterly. Well, you remember that they tried to go down to Egypt and set up a military alliance. So that doesn't work. Highways are not safe to travel on because the whole country is up to its hips and hairy Assyrians. Covenants are broken, cities are despised. One of the things that happens is Sennacherib takes the outlying fortress cities around Jerusalem so that Jerusalem finds herself isolated. So the land mourning and languishing, certainly agriculture, all those kinds of things would be on hold while the country is overrun with the Assyrians. So now verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. So we know from history that God does in fact arise and does lift himself up and is exalted especially in the relief of the siege of Jerusalem. And then you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, indicates that the efforts of men to bring peace, to bring it into the war, etc., are a waste of time. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. I would think that that probably means that you guys are speaking unwisely, hastily, rashly, trying to make treaties with Egypt, all sorts of things. So the things that come out of your mouth are going to turn around and become a fire consuming you. That goes with the understanding of the power of the human voice. You all remember that God created this whole thing with words, and he gave us power, and our words have power, so that when we speak in a way that is foolish, or contrary to what God would have happened, then our breath does become a fire that consumes us. In other words, we're consumed with our own words. Verse 13. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Now, this is going to be a rhetorical question, which he's going to answer in verse 15. But notice that the speaker here has changed. So back in verse 11, it's the people who are speaking. So the consuming fire, instead of being the voice of the godless, has now become the breath of the Lord. So the unrighteous in Jerusalem are going to be consumed and it is going to be at the behest of God. Now, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Verse 15, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ear from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from looking at evil. He will dwell on the heights, his place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So the idea here, obviously, is 
that those who are walking according to God's ways will be able to survive the burning that the Lord is going to bring. Now, a metaphor here that may not be obvious. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. The image there is someone loosely shaking his hands so that there's no possibility that a bribe will be clinging to them. In fact, there's an old rabbinic story talking about bribes. There was a rabbinic court and two people came before the court pleading their case. And during the trial, the rabbinic judge ran out of snuff. So one of the plaintiffs in the trial, one of the contestants in the trial, says, I'll go get you some. And he goes out and he gets him a box of snuff and he slips a gold coin into the box and brings it back. And the trial proceeds and the rabbi doesn't see the gold coin, he just you know, dips his snuff. And he renders a decision and his decision gets overturned by another rabbinic court. And he can't believe it. You know, he goes back and he looks at the Mishnah, the Torah, all the writings, and he says, I've considered everything. I ruled properly. And at that point, he's taking some snuff and the gold coin falls out of the box. And he says, aha, a bribe blinds the righteous, even if the righteous doesn't know he has taken one. So the idea here of shaking your hands lest they hold a bribe is by way of making sure that there's no way that you have inadvertently done something dishonest. Down to verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted towers? We're again talking still about the righteous who are going to survive the consuming fire of the Lord and he will see the messianic kingdom assuming we've got our time frame right and this where is he who counted where is he who raided the tribute where is he who counted the towers that's talking about people who have depended on military might or bribery or human strength instead of depending on the Lord and of course the rhetorical answer there is those people are gone. Verse 19, you will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. This takes us back to Isaiah 28. There, God is talking about the fact that he is going to chasten Israel, not Judah. And so Isaiah 28 11, for by people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. So the idea in 2811 is that the Lord is going to speak to his people using a foreign tongue, which is to say he's going to send an invader and going to take them out of their land because that's the only way they're going to listen to the Lord. So when we're back here in Isaiah 33, where it says, uh, 
you will see no more the insolent people, the people of, of an, you will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. What he's saying is, I will take away from you foreign invaders. Back in Isaiah 33, 20. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feast, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. So obviously talking about a future time when Jerusalem is untroubled, which it is not at the time of this prophecy. Here we have this image in verse 21, where the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. If we're talking about the Assyrian invasion, the Assyrians are not a seafaring people, especially. I mean, you know, certainly they do trade and commerce, but they're not a naval power. Greece is a naval power. Rome is going to be a naval power. The Phoenicians are a naval power. So there will be a time when transporting troops by sea becomes possible, but that's not what's going on here. And it appears to be the setup for a metaphor at the end of the chapter, a couple of verses from here. So let's go on. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. Again, notice the naval metaphor. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So the image here is of a shipwreck. And when a ship is wrecked, depending on where you are, there have been cultures who have done things like set up false lighthouses to ensure that ships get wrecked because they profit from looting wrecked ships. And so the metaphor here is of a galley with oars that is wrecked because it cannot hold the mast firm in place or keep its sail spread out. So it's not able to navigate. So it is wrecked upon the shore and it is so rich with spoil that even the slow and the lame get to get in there and take their share. In other words, it isn't just the quickest ones who get there in time to take a share of the shipwreck. There's so much spoil there that everybody is going to get a share of it. As I say, the Assyrians are not particularly a maritime people. But the idea here that Israel and Jerusalem will be safe from galleys of war and majestic ships also says that the nations who have strong navies are no longer going to be a problem to Israel. And furthermore, the plunder of the nations is going to be brought to Israel. And of course, we see that in other passages of Scripture. So this is simply a naval metaphor for basically saying that the spoil or the riches of the Gentiles will be brought to Israel during the Messianic time. So that leads us now to Isaiah 34. Here we are talking about end time stuff. It looks like the thousand year reign. 
So Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted for destruction. This correlates with Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom? in crimsoned garment from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So, this is clearly talking about the return of Yeshua. And both Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 34 talks about him starting off in Edom. Let's go back to Isaiah 34. Let's pick it up at 5 again. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Notice the similarity between 34 verses 5 through 7 and Isaiah 63 that I read a part of. The idea here is the Lord Yeshua is coming back. Looks like he's coming back to Edom or Basra. And in that process, he is going to slaughter his way up to Jerusalem. I think the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys and rams is obviously a reference to temple sacrifice since those were the parts that were sacrificed in the temple but in this case i think it's a metaphor that is talking about the people who are going to be killed by yeshua now edom of course edom is esau edom simply means red and of course esau was hairy and red all over and edom was where God put Esau as Jacob and Esau separated. Esau went to Edom. Jacob went to the land of Canaan, which became Israel. Jacob and Esau were reconciled at the end of Jacob's sojourn with Laban up in Haran. Remember, that's the place where he comes back down south and wrestles all night with the angel and then meets his brother the next day. They each fall on the other's neck and weep. 
looks like we have a reconciliation. But it turns out maybe not so fast because there is historical conflict between Israel and Edom. And one of the things that Edom does at a point where Israel is being chastened by God, Edom jumps in and refuses to give fleeing Israelites refuge, sort of joins in the unnecessary roughness. And God doesn't like that. So Edom, at the end of the day, does get judged for his treatment of his brother Israel. And that's what this chapter 34 is talking about. So I'm now down to verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Notice that he is taking vengeance and recompense for Zion, which is, of course, Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 9. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Obviously, a poetic description of complete destruction. This, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it. That takes you back to Genesis, where the world was without form and void. That is translated here as confusion. So what it's saying here is the Lord will take the land of Edom back to its pre-creation state, and it will be empty. Verse 12, its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. The idea when God is done with it, there isn't going to be enough left there to call it a kingdom, so its nobles and all its princes will be nothing because, among other things, they have no place to be princes and nobles of. Verse 13, the thorns shall grow over its stronghold, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. So again, it's turned back to essentially a state of nature before people were put on the land. 15. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. And again, the idea that the place will return to a state of nature. When he created man, male and female, he created them. The idea here is all of the animals are also created male and female, and they are complete and they are there alone without people. Verse 17. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. This idea of casting lots goes back to the division of the land under Joshua. When Joshua took the land, they cast lots and decided what the boundaries of each of the tribes were going to be. Here, the prophet is using that same metaphor and saying that 
God cast the lot over Edom and that natural animals are the ones to whom that land has befallen. So next time we'll pick it up at Isaiah chapter 35.